Welcome back to Death by Ignorance. This is episode 13, Race to the Bottom, the Sellout of National Geographic. I'll be the first to admit that my age has something to do with how disappointed I am about today's story. There was a time, a good long time ago actually, when what I'm going to talk about today wouldn't have even registered with me. And honestly, if I'd heard some bitter old man getting all wrapped around the axle about what I'm going to be talking about today, I'd just have ignored him. That's the whole reason I do this podcast. I can't go back to when it might have made a difference for me to know these things, and that makes me sad. But I have children and plenty of friends and acquaintances who are a lot younger than I am, and I want them to know about these things when they're still young and they can do something about it. If I had paid attention, I like to believe I'd have done something about it. I'd have stood up and I'd have spoken out about the stupid and dangerous and thoughtless things that we're doing to ourselves, to each other and to our planet. It's getting late, both for me and for our civilization, and still no one's listening. Sure, we get our knickers in a knot when the big stuff happens, putting children in cages or letting a deranged imposter sell our democracy for cash and hookers, turning our backs while our allies are exterminated. But then we ignore all the other stuff. And make no mistake, the big stuff probably wouldn't be happening if we'd been paying the least bit of attention to the small stuff over the last few decades. This podcast is called Death by Ignorance for a reason. It's because we've stopped paying attention to the small stuff. We ignore it. We become ignorant to the forces that are shaping our civilization. The things I'm talking about are happening every single day. They happen quietly, continuously, corrosively. We ignore situations, people, trends, and stories that we don't understand or we think are irrelevant because we've become so comfortable and we're lazy. We live in social media bubbles, blissfully ignorant of the bigger picture. As long as the car starts and we get our soy lattes and the internet doesn't go down, God forbid, we're cool. Our horizons seem to be creeping closer and closer as our private worlds shrink. We're becoming millions upon millions of self-indulgent, disconnected Neros fiddling with our iPhones while our society smolders. Today I want to share with you a story that you might never have heard anything about. It's just the kind of story that would go largely ignored because on the surface it isn't all that interesting. But I would argue that this is exactly the kind of background noise that we should be paying attention to. It's a clear example of the rot that's eating into the foundations of our society. This isn't a story that will show up in your newsfeed. You won't hear anyone on CNN or Fox News spouting their opinion on it. There won't be many corpses. Some, but not that many. The story involves the recent publication of a book by the venerable National Geographic Society. Let's take a look. The National Geographic Society met for the first time on January the 13th in 1888 at a private club in Washington. 
Attending that first meeting were 33 explorers and scientists who shared a vision to educate the world about the wonders of geography. They were an impressive group made up of wealthy patrons and some of the most influential scientific minds of the age. The first president of the new society was one Gardner Green Hubbard, who served for nine years before turning over the reins to his son-in-law, Alexander Graham Bell. The first issue of the National Geographic magazine was published nine months after the group formed. During the first several years, the magazine was more like a scientific journal than the glossy coffee table magazine it would become. In fact, for several years, the magazine was a text-only publication, though it uh, sported the unmistakable yellow border on the cover almost from the beginning. Photographs began appearing early in the century. 1905, I think, was when, when they added the first photographs. And I think the magazine was among the first to take advantage of the new color photography technology almost as soon as it was developed in the 1930s. The Society invested a fortune in the magazine's imagery, hiring the very best photographers of the day. And that, at least, hasn't changed. I'm not sure when I first became aware of the magazine. It seems to have been around me forever. I know I was a young lad, but I can't recall if it was at home or at school, or it may have been both. I'm not exaggerating when I say that the National Geographic changed my life, mostly because almost every month's magazine would have one or more photographs of real human breasts. I can't remember any of the countries that the articles were about, but I can't forget the breasts. At some point, my dad must have subscribed to the magazine because every one of my childhood memories of major world events center around one or more of the images from National Geographic. I also subscribed to the magazine myself for many years as my children were growing up, and I imagine my son also found the uh, anthropology stimulating. National Geographic has always styled itself as a popular scientific publication. Not too much science for its largely non-scientific audience, but enough to pass the sniff test. In later years, the magazine started paying a great deal more attention to pressing social matters like pollution, the environment, and the challenges facing the developing world. Both the society and the magazine have had their fair share of uh, less auspicious moments, we could say, with a couple of fairly major scandals. Well, they were called scandals back then, though they might not rise to the level of scandal in this day and age. But they were a big deal back then. Doctoring photographs of the uh, pyramids of Giza, forging fossils in 1999, and uh, Cheat was allowed to win the 2010 photography competition. They seem pretty tame now. On balance, I think it's fair to say that the magazine has stuck pretty close to the vision of its founders. It's remained a respected and trustworthy source of reasonably accurate information about our planet. Today, it covers subjects like archaeology, anthropology, exploration, the environment, biology, and many general science topics. 
Unfortunately, the long-form articles of the past have been largely supplanted by shorter, more photo-heavy pieces, and I think that's a shame. But in the plus column, National Geographic is still a reliable source for some of the most astonishing world photography in print. So with that background, what must have been going through Susan Goldberg's mind, she's the editor-in-chief these days, when she decided to publish a series of six books, actually three bound books and three softcover book zines, she's uh, devoted all of them to quackery, six publications that are right up there among the most disingenuous, misleading, fact-free, woo-based garbage that I've ever had to read. A complete series of books on the magical properties of nature's remedies. I no longer subscribe to National Geographic. I stopped getting it about a decade ago, mainly because the content was becoming progressively more superficial. As a result, I wasn't aware of the fact that the society had taken a hard left turn into pseudoscience, starting with the release of The Guide to Medicinal Herbs, a full-length hardcover book back in 2010. I was also blissfully unaware of the second full-length book, that was The Complete Guide to Natural Home Remedies in 2012. These two were followed by a series of 100-page bookazines. There were three of them. Somebody really should be behind bars for dreaming up that ugliest of ugly portmanteaus. Healing Remedies was the name of that book, and it came out in 2014. Nature's Best Remedies in 2015 and Natural Home Remedies in 2017 rounded out the list. I missed all of those, but my luck did not hold for the release earlier this year of Nature's Best Remedies, the book. A friend of mine told me about this book and urged me to get my hands on a copy. He was unaware of the fact that friends really shouldn't let friends read the literary equivalent of raw sewage, but get a copy I did, and after reading I almost said digesting, that's disgusting, this crime against reason. I was so upset about what I found that I forced myself to go back and get caught up with the other five publications, all that pseudo-scientific claptrap that I'd missed in the preceding decade. And it was a nasty experience. The National Geographic Society has always fashioned itself as a trustworthy source of information. Whether we're talking about their magazine, their television programs, or their children's publications, they've always presented themselves as a legitimate purveyor of quality material. They've always painted themselves as an organization with a passion for the principled world of science. I believe that that is largely true, notwithstanding a few missteps here and there over the decades. But this series of publications, these six books slash bookazines, has badly soiled the society's hard-earned 130-year reputation by throwing all of their scientific credibility right out of the window 
for the sake of six virulently anti-scientific screeds. All of these books, and now I'm not going to go through all of them separately, no one deserves that much abuse, are about alternative medicine. If this is your first episode of Death by Ignorance, uh, hopefully it won't be your last, but you may be unfamiliar with my overall position on pseudoscience in general and alternative medicine in particular. I have rather strong opinions, one might say, on the dangers inherent to the anti-scientific worldview. In a nutshell, nothing, and I really mean nothing good, can come from trading in a rational, evidence-based understanding of the universe for a false understanding that's based on myth or magic or marketing slogans or the mysterious influences of a made-up deity. Medicine, for example, is a science. Its practitioners demand evidence of efficacy and safety before they recommend this or that treatment. As new information is acquired through research and verified through more research, those recommendations can and will change. Treatments that are shown to be ineffective or dangerous will be withdrawn on the basis of scientific research. So, if that is medicine, what, pray tell, is alternative medicine? Well, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's an alternative to medicine, an alternative to science, to evidence, to research, to validation, to efficacy, to safety. Or to put it another way, alternative medicine is just not medicine. To understand the likelihood of a particular medical treatment safely curing your strep throat, your breast cancer, or your erectile dysfunction, you and your doctor need to take a close look at the latest evidence. You may come to trust that your doctor is staying on top of the evidence and research in his or her field, and that's the way it's supposed to be. If you don't have that trust, you find another doctor who will do those things. But at no point does a rational person just throw the evidence away and hope it all just works out. But that's exactly what you have to do if you decide to choose an alternative to medical treatment. What do you think we call an alternative medicine remedy that is proven through quality research to be safe and effective? Correct, that's called medicine. If the distinction between medicine and alternative medicine, though for clarity I think I'm just going to call it magic, is that clear and irrefutable, why in the world would any thinking person choose the magic? And that's a, a profound question, and one I spend a large portion of my waking hours contemplating. There are a great many reasons why otherwise rational people will choose magic over medicine. And as is so often the case, uh, there are a lot of different factors at play. If you want to explore some of the ways that smart people make stupid decisions, check out some earlier episodes of this podcast. For now, I'm going to focus on just one of those reasons uh, as it relates to today's discussion. And it goes something like this. Most people are not scientists. Thinking scientifically doesn't come easily, and it takes discipline and training and practice. 
Most rational people who understand the value of evidence and research, but as non-scientists lack the requisite training to analyze a proposition scientifically, they will rely on a heuristic approach to problem solving. Trusting your doctor is one such shortcut or workaround. Trusting what you read in a 130-year-old science-based publication, the National Geographic magazine, for example, is another. And that's why I'm so disappointed and angry about these six books. By publishing these books, National Geographic is saying to their once 40 million monthly readers, We've done all the rigorous vetting of this content. It's all good stuff. You can trust us 100%. When Susan Goldberg decided to publish these books, she was betraying our trust. She was lying to the people who pay her salary. And she was doing it, I presume, to sell more books. Fiddling with the photograph of Giza's pyramids, taken in context, is a kind of forgivable gaffe. Making a profit from deliberately misleading 40 million trusting readers is not. Some of the articles that have been written critical of these six books are quick to praise the quality of the publications, the beautiful artwork, the professional binding, and so on and so forth. A good example of this is the excellent piece written by Dr. Victor Benson in the September 2019 edition of the Center for Inquiries magazine, uh, Skeptical Inquiry, I think it's called. And they are beautiful books. They're gorgeously illustrated and they have plenty of factual ethnobotanical information, no doubt. But I'll leave the praise at that. It's entirely beside the point, after all. What is not beside the point is the fact that these books are crammed full of misleading, false, potentially dangerous information and unsupported, untested claims. If any of the information presented does have supporting evidence, or if it's been completely discredited, there's no way for us to know. Everything is put in all six of these books as fact. All six of the books make claims about how this or that home remedy can cure all manner of maladies, but they do so without any useful supporting documentation of any kind. But we have to consider the context. All but one of these books uses the word remedy in their titles. The very titles are tacit claims that a reader can use the content of these books to cure their ailments. If, by way of contrast, the books had titles like The History of Home Remedies or Understanding the Claims of Home Remedies, most of my concerns would evaporate, but that's not the case. These aren't useful resource texts for ethnobotanists. They're guidebooks for do-it-yourself quackery. The fact that each of these books offers a disclaimer cautioning you to check with your real doctor before using these cures is really pretty disingenuous considering the book's obvious intent. It's, It's like a drug dealer putting a warning sticker, may cause addiction, on his bags of dope. Let me be very clear about one thing. 
There is one argument that I hear more than any other from individuals defending their use of home remedies, and it goes like this. This is the same plant they use to make XYZ medicine, and that's a safe drug. Ergo, this plant is safe and effective for treating my disease. We, we should unpack all the things that are wrong and dangerous about this terrible argument. First and foremost, there's a huge assumption that the sufferer actually knows what's ailing him. In my own long professional experience, that is seldom the case. Even smart people make the most atrocious self-diagnosticians. But even if you do know, and you're correct about your diagnosis, that's just be the beginning of your problems. It's certainly true that a great many easily available plants contain the raw materials used to manufacture human medications. About half of the drugs that you can find in any modern pharmacopoeia were derived from plants. Listen to episode 12 for a description of how this process works. To jump from that to deciding that eating a few leaves of the particular plant is the same as taking your prescription is a mistake that has killed a whole lot of foolish people. Let's look at one example. This one's not in the book. It's made up by me. One of the first effective treatments for congestive heart failure and a number of heart arrhythmias is called digoxin. It goes by the trade name of Lenoxin in the US and it has about a hundred other uh, brand names. And it's still used extensively for treating patients with congestive heart failure. Digoxin is a cardiac glycoside. It has the chemical formula C41H64O14. It's a complex organic molecule that's derived from digitalin, which is a group of glycosides extracted from uh, digitalis plants of various species. There are many species of digitalis. Uh, digitalis purpurea is the common foxglove that you'll find in people's gardens. And digitalis lanata, or the woolly foxglove, uh, is another one. That's a weed that's uh, very common in the Midwest. It was an English physician, Dr. Withering, who discovered some of the cardiotonic properties of the digitalins back in 1785. Most of the digoxin in clinical use is derived from that less attractive woolly digitalis lanata plant today. Common foxglove is an almost ubiquitous northern hemisphere plant with attractive purple flowers that can be found in the flower beds of well-tended gardens across the temperate globe. So why not chew a few foxglove leaves or make a herbal tea from the dried plant? you'd be getting exactly the same drug, a drug that has proven effective. Well, first, digoxin is not the only cardiac glycoside in foxglove. There are others, uh, digitoxin, for example, and their potency and their mechanisms of actions vary. Then there's the fact that the plant contains other chemicals, some of which may be toxic, and a few of them you may even be allergic to, Arsenic and lead have both been found in herbal preparations bought at health food stores, by the way. And what about the dosage? One characteristic of digitalin-derived drugs is their very narrow therapeutic window, which is a fancy way of saying 
there isn't a whole lot of difference between an ineffective dose, an effective dose, and a lethal dose. But even for herbs with no effective lethal dose, you still have no way of knowing exactly how much of the drug you're getting. These products are not subject to the rigorous ongoing testing for purity and safety that pharmaceuticals are. Another thing to consider is that the concentration of the digitalins in a foxglove plant vary widely between the first and second years of growth. An effective dose last year could turn out to be a lethal one this year. You should think about what else might be in your homemade heart remedy. Roundup weed killer can't be good for your heart. So at the risk of stating the obvious, we take our prescribed medications because first they have been prescribed for us and our particular condition at a dosage that's known exactly and it's appropriate for our weight, our age, our metabolism, our kidney function and so on. The prescription drug is pure. It doesn't contain anything unexpected. Home-brewed foxglove tea is not a pure and natural healthy alternative to your Lenoxin prescription. It's an incredibly foolish game of Russian roulette. And the same arguments could be put forward for most other home remedies. Science has given you a safer, cleaner, purer, and more reliable alternative to eating your houseplants. It's not the other way around. By the way, my example would have been less useful if I told you up front that the foxglove is also known as witch's fingers and dead man's bells. Getting back to the books, the single most inexcusable fact that characterizes all of these silly books is the lack of a single reference to the scientific literature. Not one. Despite claiming hundreds of curative properties for hundreds of supposed remedies, there is not one single reference to a piece of actual scientific evidence. Whatever group of idiots wrote these pages were quick to mention things like the evidence shows and research demonstrates and scientists pinky swear that it's true without even giving us a hint of where we could find this research, who the scientists are, what the papers were titled. In a series of books offering medical advice to the public, this is utterly unacceptable. What must Susan have been thinking? Please indulge me while I throw in a quick side note here. Not that it matters, but I've always liked and respected Susan Goldberg. She's always struck me as one of the good guys, a really ballsy journalist and a principled leader. I was blown away by her gutsy comments and sincere apology for the racism that influenced so much of National Geographic's early writing. But this sanctioning of such blatantly anti-scientific gobbledygook, I honestly just don't get it. As if this casual disregard for accepted standards of scientific writing wasn't enough to keep these books off the shelf, there's more. They're almost laughably inconsistent from one book to the next, even within the same book and on one occasion on the same page. 
One book, for example, tells you to eat butter burr to prevent headaches. Then the next book in the series gives you a list of about a dozen headache preventatives, not one of which is butter burr. The second book, by the way, tells us that butter burr works with asthma. Other books in the series like butter burr for joint pain, allergies, and inflamed intestines, whatever they mean by that, bladder spasms, and stomach ulcers. The most remarkable inconsistency which was picked up uh, by Dr. Benson in his article was the use of cat's claw for rheumatoid arthritis. In one of the books, the mystery author, that's important to note, five of these books don't even tell us who wrote them, uh, is touting cat's claw as a surefire way to manage joint pain from your rheumatoid arthritis. And then on the exact same page, you're warned in no uncertain terms to never use cat's claw if you have an autoimmune condition. What? like rheumatoid arthritis? It's just unbelievable. Reading these books, it feels like you're reading a transcript of the unedited mumblings of a recovery room full of post-op surgery patients who are all emerging from anesthesia at the same time. We've talked about this before, but there's a useful sniff test for assessing the claims of these supposed magical cures. It appears that the efficacy of a given woo cure is inversely proportional to the number of conditions it claims to cure. The best example in this entire series is that of the miraculous water chestnut. Without a shred of evidence, but with the book version of a completely straight face, we are told about the water chestnut's magical properties, and apparently according to National Geographic, this tasteless, crunchy vegetable is an antibiotic, an anti-cancer drug, an antiviral agent, and an antioxidant. It's a remedy for skin infections, uh, insomnia, migraine headaches, listlessness, cancer, hypertension, cardiac arrhythmias, dementia, postmenopausal bone loss, indigestion, and nausea. Well, at least I know now that it wasn't the takeout low mains water chestnuts that had me puking my toenails up for 24 hours. It must have been the cat after all. Anyway, by my sniff test, that long list of chestnut cured diseases makes it a statistical certainty that water chestnuts are in fact tasteless, crunchy vegetables, period. In addition to plenty of other spurious, ridiculous claims, there's also quite a bit of demonstrably false information that's presented as if it were take-it-to-the-bank fact. Like in this example, the net health effects of eating saturated fats in the form of full-fat butter and cheese are described as positive, and that's just Incorrect, unless that is you consider deliciousness to be a positive health effect, which it isn't. To be clear, saturated fats in dairy based foods have been repeatedly and scientifically proven to increase the concentration of low density lipoproteins in the blood of butterholic cheesophiles like me. 
But these books don't just let the side down by what they say. They should also be called out for what they don't say. It doesn't seem to bother the editors that nowhere are the safe, effective, inexpensive alternatives to these supposed magical remedies presented. As Dr. Benson pointed out in his article, one of the books goes into a great deal of detail about the various ways that you can prepare lavender oil to cure your athlete's foot. And these methods mostly involve uh, mixing your rather expensive lavender oil with other potentially costly ingredients like tincture of benzoin, sweet almond oil, thyme oil, who knows, eye of newt possibly. And these things are only available, I'd imagine, at overpriced herbal remedy shops. But the point here is that nowhere do the authors mention that a $3 tube of clotrimazole will actually reliably and safely cure not only your athletically compromised foot and your fungal jock itch, but almost every other so afflicted foot and groin in your entire JLI league. And it isn't good enough to say our books aren't about real medicine. We just educate our readers about make-believe medicine. To recommend unproven, expensive home remedies without mentioning proven cheap cures is just plain irresponsible. What really scares me about these books is they pose an even more immediate and serious threat to gullible, trusting National Geographic readers. In several instances, for example, the books state or imply that a given remedy may be effective for some complaint or other, when that complaint should, in the real world, be considered an unambiguous indication that the sufferer needs to get to the doctor right now. One example of this is the implication that the remedy, and I, I think it was the magical water chestnut again, is a good way to detoxify if you have jaundice. Let me be crystal clear about this. If you're an adult and you notice that your skin and the whites of your eyes are turning yellow, the next step is never to go and find yourself a nice plump water chestnut. Instead, the next step is to go and find a nice plump physician, preferably yours, but any will do in a pinch. Painless jaundice in an adult is caused by an obstructing pancreatic cancer until proven otherwise. There are several other less catastrophic diagnoses that need to be considered, but only once the testing has definitively ruled out a pancreatic tumor, and literally none of them are going to respond to eating water chestnuts. It's bordering on criminally negligent to even hint that a trial of water chestnut enemas or whatever is a good first step. The difference between catching a pancreatic cancer just in time and finding out it's just a little too late to do anything is on the order of days. Even a short delay in diagnosis and treatment can be a fatal decision. Taking all six of these books together, the material presented about the various remedies have quite a few characteristics in common. Many of the treatments have some clinical effects, but they're 
always poorly defined or exaggerated or lack good scientific evidence to support the claims. Another thing I tend to bang on about is the difference between good research and bad research, and there is a difference. Good research is well-conceived, it's thorough, uses large sample sizes, rigid controls, and effective blinding where appropriate. The results are subjected to a rigorous statistical analysis, and they're reviewed by qualified peers, and they can be replicated by independent researchers. And when such a process yields evidence supporting the hypothesis or claim, the findings of the study are conditionally accepted by the scientific community until such time as further research either strengthens or weakens the evidence. That's science. Bad research is bad science, and in many cases, non-science. Small samples, poor design, no controls, no peer review, unrepeatable findings, the lack of statistical significance. All of these things are hallmarks of bad research, and results of this kind of research should be weighted accordingly. Even though the authors of these books don't provide us with any references, they don't tell us where the research is, there is research out there uh, that you can find, and even though the quality of this research is almost universally atrocious, there are some studies out there that offer some type of support for some of the claims in these books. There is also quite a bit of evidence to the contrary, better studies in most cases, that refute most of the claims in the books. And this, I suspect, is why none of these books include references to the research. The few claims that have been subjected to research mostly lack follow-up efficacy or safety testing, which is another huge red flag, and none of the recommended treatments have been officially approved for treating anything. And these are the claims that have research. A great many have no research whatsoever, nothing. They are entirely fanciful, dreamt up out of thin air, but presented as fact. The books are chock full of claims that give the reader no usable information related to side effects or drug interactions. Does this remedy cause seizures in one patient out of a million, or is it one out of three? Your guess is as good as mine. The books don't tell us. And what about dosages? How, how much of that foxglove elixir is too much? Well, that was a trick question. Any foxglove is too much foxglove. But credit where credit is due. These crazy books don't include foxglove in their bag of tricks, thank goodness. That was just my example. There's another facet of the whole remedy business that we need to consider. It's only relevant to this discussion because the books don't mention it, but fake medicine is big business. There are a lot of unscrupulous individuals and companies out there whose entire business model is based on tricking gullible people into buying whatever their brand of snake oil is. Make no mistakes, these are bad people. If they have no compunction about selling ineffective, unproven pseudo-treatments to suckers to make a buck, what else might they be willing to do to make even more? Several home remedies for treating erectile dysfunction have been marketed and are probably still on the market today, 
that have been adulterated deliberately with sildenafil. That's Viagra, by the way. So while you may think that your flaccidity is responding nicely to your safe and natural cucumber seed tonic or whatever it is, it's actually the cheap counterfeit Chinese Viagra that's doing the trick. And on the off chance you're also being treated for chronic hypertension, you might want to consult your real doctor before combining blood pressure medicine with Viagra. A fairly recent FDA database analysis revealed that the administration had identified almost 800 cases of adulteration involving dietary supplements, and that was from 146 different manufacturers over a period of just nine years, ending in 2016. That's a huge number of potentially serious injuries waiting to happen. I hope you're getting my point here. It isn't just the stuff that does nothing and costs a fortune that I worry about. It's also the stuff that you don't even know these charlatans are tricking you into putting in your body. And how often is this real danger mentioned in the 1,400 pages of these six volumes of quackery? Yep, you nailed it. Exactly zero times. So... What are you actually getting when you plonk down your hard-earned 35 bucks in exchange for the latest National Geographic guide, Nature's Best Remedies? You're getting lies, magical thinking, bias, duplicity, evasion, sleight of hand, bad advice, misinformation, and some really pretty illustrations. The publisher that you trusted to bring you breasts of every imaginable shape, size, and color from every corner of the globe, and then later in life, the publisher that you believed to be passionate in their love of science and steadfast in their devotion to telling the truth, has just turned its back on you, on all of us. But all of this ranting rather begs the question, why would the National Geographic Society do this. I've already shared my opinion about Susan Greenberg, and I have a hard time imagining her as a consumer of this kind of rubbish. And I may be wrong about that. I'm constantly being shocked and disconcerted when otherwise respectable and intelligent men and women speak out against vaccination or rally behind homeopathy. So it could be that. This could be a Greenberg project start to finish. She could have written the first five authorless books for all we know, but I still don't buy it. Could this be a consequence of Fox Media's infiltration into the National Geographic ecosystem? That would make more sense. Fox has a well-earned reputation for its rather casual relationship with the truth, especially when there's some money to be made. But Fox didn't take over till 2015. I know they had a lot of input into the television side of National Geographic's business before then, as far back as 1997, I believe. But I was unaware of them having much influence on the print publishing side of things, but maybe they did. But either way, it didn't. It couldn't have happened without Susan knowing about it. That would be impossible. Did she read the first draft of the first book and come out swinging, only to be outvoted by the board or 
Did it all come down to cold, hard cash? Probably. From what I've read, subscriptions are down and they are dropping, and making TV is expensive. We'll probably never know the whole sad story, but in many respects it doesn't matter. The damage has been done. If this august and storied body could sell out once, they could do it again and again, and it'll get easier and easier over time. I can't see Alexander Graham Bell's National Geographic Society recovering from this. Maybe Disney will dream up some kind of post-truth National Geographic magazine full of gorgeous pictures that people will still want to buy, but, but its tenure as a trusted and reliable source of good information, that must be over. The one thing that they could not afford to lose, their integrity, is the one thing that publishing these terrible six volumes is going to cost them. It was one thing to learn that our banks and our insurance companies were robbing us blind, but we always thought they were probably doing that anyway. It's altogether more upsetting to witness the demise of a trusted friend, a victim of its own intellectual dishonesty. Rest in peace, National Geographic. Good day.